So open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 11. <clears throat> we pick it up in verse 45. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. This lovely lady in the back here will gladly give you one. John, fourth book of the New Testament. So we pick it up in verse 45. <clears throat> Let's go back a couple verses to verse 43 for our context. Jesus has just prayed. This is now when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Then, Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council together or council, and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs, and if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there he remained with his disciples. You pray with me, please. Lord, I thank you so much that we get this time in your word. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you are going to move in us and speak to us. And we commit this time to you and pray you would move in monumental ways to each of us and for each of us. Not simply so that we could feel filled or feel bolstered, Lord, but that we would come to a state of overflow that would impact the entire world around us and eternity for that matter. So, please, Lord, now, let your scripture come open and come alive for us. Minister profoundly to us, we pray. Have your way. We commit this time to you, Lord, every minute of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Now, Jesus is told a good friend, Lazarus, is quite unwell and loving him and his sisters, Martha and Mary. He waits. Seems like a strange thing, but he knows that the end game isn't death, but death is in root. Now, imagine Jesus, infinite, all the power and fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily in Jesus and having to tone the whole thing down for us. I mean, how... Often, he would have wanted to, if you were Jesus, wouldn't you have wanted to just at moments kind of just, hey, this is a little bit more of who I am? 
And to be honest, we want that too. We really want Jesus to reveal himself more than just sort of on a two-dimensional stat kind of way. The problem is, is that though Jesus is wanting to reveal himself that way, and in essence, that simply means reveal his glory. And then these are moments like this that facilitate that. They're en route to the glory, and they're paved with pain and grief, and they're full of questions we can't answer. And that's part of the problem, is we ache and we feel the pain, and we, we grapple with the questions, and, and at the moment we just feel so confused, and yet the end root of it all will be Christ's glory. We just don't see it at the moment. Now, Mary and Martha are full of those. Martha leaving her comforters behind, and what we see in our text in verse 45, is that the comforters stayed with Mary. She leaves those comforters behind, these worldly comforters, and hoped beyond reason while Mary simply, with those comforters, grieves. But Jesus, the resurrection and the life, raises Lazarus and calls him to be loosed and released. Now, note here, when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he is fully alive. He's not 50% alive. He's not 70% alive. He's not mostly alive. He's completely alive. Yet, though he is made alive by Jesus, he is unwrapped by people. No, Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have just in the same statement say, Lazarus, come forth. And by the way, here's a nice new tunic. And here's a nice new... I mean, he could have done it, but he didn't. Lazarus comes out, his face, and the Bible makes very clear here in John 11, that his face was wrapped and the rest of him was wrapped as well. So consider this. Lazarus, though fully alive, can't see clearly. Not as clearly as he could. Now, he certainly could see clearly, more clearly than he was when he was dead, at least in the sense of the worldly things. But he couldn't see as clearly as he will in a moment as those around him unwrap him. He couldn't walk. He didn't have the walk that he possibly could as he came out of there. But soon he will because others will help unwrap him. He couldn't set his hands to the work yet and see anything positive come from it yet because, to be honest, his hands were wrapped. But they will be unwrapped, and he will soon. And the Lord gives us this beautiful pleasure. The moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you were fully alive. That didn't mean you saw everything perfectly clearly. It didn't mean that everything you set your hands to had an eternal smell to them. It didn't mean that you had this amazing walk from the moment you kind of came out of the spiritual womb, if you will. Now, maybe you did to some degree, but I can guarantee you that the Lord calls us, human beings that are Jesus' disciples, to have part in this process so that we get the joy of doing that too. So consider this. As Bruno comes out of the tomb, we're unwrapping Bruno seeing more clearly, but we're also seeing Bruno more clearly. The new Bruno, by the way. Bruno 2.0. Now, consider this, that if we actually are able to agree with what we already know about Lazarus, if Jesus is telling us the story about this man from Luke 16, he was covered in oozing sores, according to the parable Jesus speaks. Consider the fact that when Jesus speaks about a poor man named Lazarus and a man who has five brothers who's clearly wealthy, who clearly is in a position of power and of might, that that poor man was in horrible shape. 
Now, we can't be sure that that's the same Lazarus, but it's the only two times that Lazarus is mentioned is in Luke 16's account, and then here in John 11 and 12. We do know he's a good friend, but if that's the case, I kind of get the idea that Lazarus didn't pop out of the tomb covered in oozing sores that the dogs would lick. And that tells me that even from the moment that he comes out, he's a new man. Now, he has yet to discover the new man he is to some degree. But as those that are around him are unwrapping him, well, they're going to see the difference right away. And please understand, as we move into this, understand again, Jesus gives you the privilege, the opportunity, to be part of the unwrapping of other people's grave clothes. I mean, even if Lazarus was completely, and I do believe, of course, 100% alive, his grave clothes weren't. Which means, even if he was completely non-stinkous, his grave clothes might have. His hands might have been wrapped in that which stunk. His face might have been covered in that which stunk because it had death on it for four days. Another good reason to unwrap the poor guy. And I'll say this. that When you give your life to Jesus, some of the things you actually kind of think and see and set your hands to in the beginning, they kind of stink in the beginning. And the Lord calls us to commit to fellowship for one of the reasons is, is that it's in groups like this that we get the privilege of watching God unwrap our grave clothes using other people. And he sets a standard here. Now, as we get into the text, it's important to note, even when he comes out of the tomb, he has not been unwrapped yet. He has not been anything but breathing and coming out. It doesn't take anything but that for him to make quite a splash. And note that, by the way. He doesn't have to be fully unwrapped to cause a stir. The moment he comes out of the tomb, he amazes people. And the disciples will get that chance to see Lazarus clearly, more clearly as they unwrap him. But please hear me. From the moment that you say yes to Jesus, God makes you spiritually alive. And in making you spiritually alive, you're going to cause a stir among people around you. People are going to take notice. Now, as they continue to unwrap you, you will cause even more of a stir. But please hear me in this. The moment you are spiritually alive, people are going to respond in one of three ways. And we see them all right here in front of us. So this text in front of us, in essence, is, if you will, kind of a handbook for how life is going to be for you now that you said yes to Jesus, if you have said yes to Jesus. If you haven't said yes to the gift of Jesus, and he's calling you out of the grave, and you're kind of still deliberating on it, well, then you're one of the people actually in these groups. But if you have said yes to Jesus, you move from one of these people to actually being Lazarus in the story. So hear me on this. It starts with this in verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did, believed in him. This will be one of the responses that people will have because you are now a new creation in Jesus Christ. And that is that they will believe, not just in you, they will believe in the one who called you out of the tomb. As a matter of fact, it will say in John chapter 12, the next chapter, the only other chapter that Lazarus has mentioned, verse 11, because on the account of many of the Jews, because on the account of Lazarus, that is, that many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The moment you start living for Jesus, 
The moment you come out of the tomb and you're not just going, I'm going to go sit in here and just kind of breathe and I'm just going to, I don't want anyone to know. Well, it's time to like, you know, people are coming out of all kinds of things, including closets. We should come out of the tomb and make people clear that we have been set free by Jesus Christ. We've been made new by Jesus Christ. And people are going to start to wonder. And as we are actually walking, living, breathing examples of new life, other people are going to believe in Jesus as a result of it. Now, that's only one of three responses. But don't you just wish that everyone was just in the first group? Because there's no antagonism there. Nobody's kind of crawling into our faces and making our life miserable for it. No one's trying to detract us from that. To be honest, they're celebrating it. Now, understand, who were the people who were believing? According to verse 45, it says, many of the Jews who had come to Mary. Remember, those were the professional mourners who, in essence, were experts in grief that were sent from Jerusalem as, an, as a mitzvot, as, a, as an act of kindness to grieve over the death of a brother that they have no reason to grieve over anymore because he's not dead anymore. And if you consider that, I'd like you to realize the same people who came who could have been the comforters that Martha leaves behind and will embrace Jesus are the same ones who come to Christ when we give him a chance to see what happens when Jesus gets a hold of us. Ah, oh, that he would get a hold of us that way that the world would look and go, wow. Now, what if they've just met you? It isn't like they have the chance to see the dead you and the living you. Well, here's the truth. Is that spiritually, you're still the only living creature. Chances are you might be the only living person on the train at that moment. And if that's the case, people are going to start to notice. The question is, are we willing to be bold enough to let them know why we're different? Because if we don't, we are going to confuse people to the point where they could go to hell for that confusion. Consider that. Now, that's our first answer is believe. Oh, that God would bring such people into our lives to observe us. And they're going to think about it. What would it be like to see? I mean, you have been crying because that's what you're paid to do in essence. You're beating your breast and you're, oh, and then Lazarus comes out and you're like, this is the weirdest day I've ever had on the job or elsewise. And at that point, you realize the evidence is staring in the face. Would you not stare? Would you not? No, that can't be. Think about the questions that would go through your head. That can't possibly be, right? Understand, as the disciples unwrap him, they're not just unwrapping Lazarus for Lazarus' sake. They're unwrapping Lazarus for everybody else's sake. Because then the people go and go, no, that's clearly Lazarus. That's clearly him. But that's not him. That's him, but it's a different him. It's a better him. It's a new him. It's a free him. It's a, it's a healthy him. It's a thriving him. And those are the things people are going to see as you continue to get wrapped up. Now, please hear me. I realize that, and, and this is going to sound like it's a commercial for us, but it's like you've got to commit to some kind of fellowship because it's hard. I, and let's face it, the times when you need it the most are the times when you want it the least. A place where, where you can be around people who will actually not just say it's cool to stay in a retarded state of Christian growth, but in a place that are going to challenge you within an Olympic challenge to really grow in Jesus, to do something different than you did yesterday, better, more like Jesus. Because the goal, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, which should mean Christ-like, is to become more like Jesus, not more like the world, but more like Jesus. 
And no matter what it is that you find important that you think is a good life pursuit, chances are you're going to look at people who do it pretty amazingly and try to, in essence, either emulate or at least draw from those examples. Well, that's one of the great things about all of us is we're all growing in this. To be an example of perfection, Jesus is only going to be is your only option. But may we all be examples of growth, of pursuit of passion and desire, because that's what the Lord really wants here. And as we come out of the tomb, people are going to look and go, man, you are different. Now, I remind you, that's only one of three responses, but it is my favorite. Chances are it's yours too. Verse 46, we can miss the second of the three. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Now, ultimately, the chief priests are going to gather together a council, and we'll get to that in a moment, But it's an easy group to miss because, in essence, it seems like a segue verse between Jesus and, meanwhile, back at the camp, we have all these religious leaders being horrible people. But understand, the second group of people tells us that not everybody who was there hired to grieve for Mary, and, in essence, Martha, actually believed. The second group, might I say, the first group is believe. The second group is blabber. They just talk. They got the information. They saw the same Lazarus raised. They saw this brand new creation in front of them, raised up from the grave, if you will. They saw him unwrapped, if you will. But in all of that, well, let me say it this way. They'll talk. They'll tell. But they won't take. And you know there are people that will say, well, those people, they're just all talk. Don't let that be what you think Christianity is. Do you know what that is, according to Scripture? It's called philosophy. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, Paul is brought, in essence, to the hub of philosophy. It is a place called Eropagos, or if we will, Mars Hill. It is a place where, in essence, all of the really smart people, or at least the ones that are intended to appear that way, smart people would gather together and talk about how much smarter they are than everyone else. And they had this aspect, and they met for the aspect of philosophy. Philecho, philos, means to befriend or to love. Sophia means wisdom. Philosophy, in its simple sense, means the love of wisdom. But it is ironic and paradoxical, if you will, because wisdom, if we're going to be honest, is information properly applied. In other words, wisdom should not be wisdom without action. Let me say that again. Wisdom is not really wisdom without action. Because somewhere in it, you have the information and you apply that information. Now, if Hugo and Deborah are walking by the sea in Portugal, and as they're walking by the sea, a giant 16-meter great white shark breaches out of the water and starts to come after them, This is entirely hypothetical, and this is no prophecy. On the sand, sliding up the sand, but Hugo remembers that he has shark repellent in his pocket. And he knows that this shark repellent that he has, and again, this is hypothetical, and at this point, fantastical, but he knows that it's specifically for landsliding great white sharks. He has all of the information in his head. He's got it in his pocket, This will keep us from getting eaten. As the thing is sliding closer to them, he still has the information. Wisdom is enacted when the boy takes the stuff out and sprays. 
or whatever you do with shark repellent that doesn't really exist, by the way. And what we find is that when God speaks about philosophy, it is nothing of the love of wisdom, but it really is, if you will, the worship of intellect. As a matter of fact, this is how the Bible puts it in Acts 17, verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, that's at Marcel, spent their time doing nothing but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Philosophy in the simplest sense, all talk, no action. Now, please understand, I have a minor, and that means in essence of a, a three of a four-year study in philosophy. It isn't like I don't know what it is, and it isn't like I haven't studied it, but I've learned one thing. It is a, it is, it's, it's sort of like working out but never having a place to exercise beyond that. In other words, you're trying to bulk up to impress other people, but you're really not trying to get strong for any other intent and purpose other than trying to glorify yourself. And that really is kind of what happens, at least in the study that I went through. It was all about intellectually working out to try to make yourself look macho and buff intellectually. I want you to know I, am, I can beat you up with my brain. That's kind of the idea. I don't know why that particular accent comes out for that, but you get the idea. And the whole point of it is, is that understand there are people here, they saw the same thing you did. They saw somebody come out of the grave. They see a brand new creation. They watch somebody that was dead that's now alive. They're watching them be unwrapped. And though you went and you went, whoever did this is God. And they looked and went, i got to go tell someone else. Now you'd think that would be good. The problem is who they're telling, they darn well know, has already drawn battle lines against this. And that's the way it works. So what happens is you you want to say yes to Jesus, but you know there's a couple of sins you still really kind of like, and you really don't want to let go of. So what you do is you kind of go, but but if Jesus is really real, I have to actually have my life to him, and he has to be Lord, and I can't just kind of be somebody that kind of is my bellhop. But if I go online, I'm sure I could find something on YouTube that tells me that I can do both. And there's always some nutcase out there somewhere who's going to have to stand before God for their followers, which I find is an interesting term, uh, because of this very thing. But then people look and they go, what do they see when they think of Christianity? Us cuddling together in a cold room. And it is cold in here, isn't it? I'm really sorry. I have nothing to do about it, but I'm sorry. Just saying. And it's like, you know what? If it gets colder sooner or later, we'll just start setting things on fire. There's probably... Well, they they know. Okay. Oh, that's being recorded. Dang it. All right. Anyways, so hear me on this. So this is kind of how it works, is that you kind of know there are certain people that are going to shoot you down, but please hear me on this. They're going to shoot down your interest, and you know it. So because you know it, you are responsible if you run to them. Just be smart enough to know that. In other words, if the Lord is telling you, I've got something brave and courageous, and amazing and fantastical beyond the shark repellent that, that I want to that I want to do with your life. You know there are people you can turn to that are going to uh 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 don't go overboard and they're going to appease that part of you that you know is disobedient. And if you know that before you go there, then you know that you're actually fostering your own rebellion in doing so. Consider that. Now, I know for a fact that Hugo and Deborah could have turned to certain people for advice that they know would have openly defied what God was already telling them to do. 
I think they were even fearful to tell us at first because they know how much we love them. But what can we do but say, if this is the Lord's hand, we want to back you up what way we can. Now, please hear me in that. Every one of you, God has an amazing life planned. I mean, I genuinely believe that. I mean, not just something kind of cool. I mean, you know, something that's got a little bit of color in it. I mean, we're talking about something you could not have invented in your own head. And the only thing, the only fence builder that is going to be is you and anyone you decide to drag in to foster the fact that you must be okay to try to squelch down the Holy Spirit inside of you that's saying, I've got great plans for you. So, do you want to believe or do you want to just blabber? But then there's our third group. And already, you can see why the first is my favorite. Verse 47. Remember, they went and said, you guys. And of course, they know where these guys are going to be. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council. So they're like, hey, Lazarus, this guy, he was dead for four days. By now he stinketh. Jesus said, Father, I know that you always hear me, but I'm praying because everyone else around me is listening to me pray right now, and I want them to know you hear me. And, and so, thanks, Dad. All right, Lazarus, come on out. You know, and Lazarus comes out and people, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and so then they, they're going to tell him, and people are like, okay, well, thanks for telling us, young, you know, thank you. All right. Well, and then they call a council. The term council here is a very important one, and it's a Greek term. The term sun, try that, like sun, try that word, just sun. It's the word we use in synthetic, synthesis, synergetic, uh, symbiotic. It means together. And the word, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The word hidras, try the word hidras. Hidras means this. It means to sit. Sun hidras means to sit together. And it is the term from which we get the term Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the 70, the Jewish ruling council, I remind you, I mean, after Israel was taken captive, uh, the north in 722 B.C., 721 B.C. by the Assyrians. The south in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. I mean, once they were taken captive, there were no more kings that came back, even when they, they, the nation was restored. So who's your rock star? Who's the guy that's kind of large and in charge? Well, that was the Kohen Gadol. That was the high priest. We'll meet him here in a moment. He's the one who puts this whole thing together. At least he seems to be the one in charge of this, this council. And please hear me in this. I love what he says because it's very telling, but it is also, for me personally, it's very convicting. Look at what he says. He calls his Sanhedrin together. And he says, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. Now, what that tells us is they genuinely believe that this guy is doing miracles. And he's not just doing miracles. He's not just doing wonders. There's words for that in the Greek as well. But he's doing signs, which means a sign, I remind you, is a miracle to back up a message. It is a fantastical thing. It is something that is amazing to back up an amazing claim. In other words, what Jesus is doing is clearly supernaturally buttressing what Jesus is saying about himself. So they clearly know Jesus is clearly doing miracles. And they clearly know, by the way, that Jesus has statements about himself and that the two of them correlate. But here's the statement that convicts me, verse 48. 
if we let him alone like this, like apparently we've been doing, everyone will believe in him, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, please don't miss this. He's saying, what are we going to do about this guy? I mean, right now, he has a message, and it's very clear. And that message is getting backed up with all kinds of proof. Now, is there any part of you that thinks, well, then why don't you kind of consider the message yourself? Because the proof is there. The evidence, the word we get witness from, materias, is clearly Lazarus is part of the witness of this. He's part of the, 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 uh, he's part of the proof. He's part of the evidence. They're like, man, look at this guy. I mean, what he's saying and what he's doing are so interlocked. And I, I don't think we can, we, we, to be honest, I don't think we can shut him down on either front. The message is an unstoppable message. The methods in which he's using us seem to be unstoppable as well, but we're going to have to stop him. But here's the part that gets me. If we leave him alone, this is what's going to happen. Now, my question to you is, what if they said that about you? My question to me was, what if they said that about me? If he was given every resource, if he was not to be stopped, if we just leave him alone, What would, what would be the end result? Would it be that everyone would believe in, in Jesus? Because that's what they think about Jesus. They're like, man, if this, is, this guy is so bent on this that everything he does and everything he says correlate to this single point, and that is that you need to trust him with your life for this new life that clearly has been demonstrated through this guy Lazarus, which, by the way, is just the Greek, if you will, for Eleazar, which means God our helper. And so he's looking at it and they're going, we need, to, we need to stop this guy, but if we left him alone, and let me ask you, if they left us alone, where would we go with it? Would we just get comfortable? Would we get quiet? Would we get somber? I mean, think about the fact, and I've I got to be honest, this has been really rough for me. Because as I read this, I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, there are people who are, who are spending unbelievable amounts of money to help sponsor so that we could be in this country to preach Jesus to people and to share with you to see people raised up and to do the same. And this is what they think is happening. They're looking going, what are we going to do? And if we leave this guy alone, people are going to just believe in him. And I do believe they genuinely believe that. I believe that. And so I'm like, God, so this has been my cry to him with songs like we're singing, like, make me alive. It's like, God, I want to give you everything so that when other people stand, now this is opposition now, let's be honest. This is opposition. And the reason it's opposition is they don't want this to happen. There are going to be people who do not want you to be effective, because if you could be effective, then other people, people they care about, or people they have under their dominion, are now going to be swayed to Christ. And they don't want that. So look what they say. If we leave this guy alone, everyone's going to believe in him. And you know, as a result of that, the Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. In the simplest sense, this counterfeit kingdom, this religious enterprise has a lot to lose. Think about it. They have to lose their people, their place, and their power. That's what, they're gonna, that's what they have to lose here. They have people under their influence, and they will lose those people under their influence. They have power as a result of that, and they have a place, a position of importance because of that. 
And the moment they start turning to Jesus, guess what? Strip clubs start showing, shouting down. You know, the clubs that are obviously, I mean, it's like the, the drug trade starts going to pot. <laughs> That's a terrible pun. Uh, and it's, it's like, think about all of the things that could be happening. And yet in all of this, uh, all the things that will stop happening. And you can imagine the enemy is not going to take that lying down. And those who are in, under his employ are going to take serious notice. Now, listen, if you are, and I've learned this, if you are buddying up with the enemy, don't expect much opposition but if you were taking a stand for jesus even let's be honest it says all those who desire to live godly in christ will suffer persecution it doesn't even say those who actually accomplish it the moment you decide i'm going to live for jesus it is amazing what's going to come at you at a moment like that things to distract you and things that just come flat out at your face and here you are, you're, I mean, you, are, you, you, you woke up this morning and you prayed. Now, for some, that's a brand new idea. And, and if you want to talk about that, I mean, you want to start a healthy prayer regime, I'd love to encourage you in that. I've had this amazing time as of the last few months of just being in the Lord every morning, uh, just in prayer. I've just had the most amazing time. And then it's been my challenge to read a book every day except Sunday where I just read the text so that I'm kind of, my mind's on that. Uh, and it's just been so good. But it's 2018, and I've been seven days in. Woo! But it's, you know, I'm just, I'm telling you, it's like, I'm like, this is, what, and it wasn't even like I kind of sat in 2016 and went, this is my resolve. I actually just kind of woke up and went, all right, Lord, let's do this. But it's like just in the moment that you can, you, all of a sudden you kind of, you start walking and you're joyful. And somebody gives you a weird look because you're smiling. And you know you're smiling because of Jesus. And you know that. And there's a part of you that goes, wow, this is weird. This is persecution. I haven't even opened my mouth yet. Like, yeah. What are you going to do at that moment? Are you going to go, well, I really don't want that kind of opposition. Well, then good, because then you get to actually have the opposition of fighting the Holy Spirit for the rest of your life. Have fun with that. In the first group, they believe. In the second group, they blabber. But in the third group, they block. And they just want to block it. They want to block what you're doing. They want to block what you're saying. But the first place it starts, the blocking happens right in here. Because you, you, know, you know what it's like? Where you ever talk to somebody? Because this happens to me all the time because I, I'm terribly friendly. And I'm American. I don't know. I guess you can blame it on that. But it's Jesus. That's where it comes from. And it's like, you know, and you're like, hey, well, hey, well, what, what do you do? Hey, do you like working here? How long have you worked? Where are you from? I mean, obviously, in this, country, in this city, you could just ask about anybody, right? Hey, where are you from? And nobody, I mean, it's like, like one in a million turn to look at you and go, I'm from London. I'm like, oh, well, that's weird, you know. And, and so here we are, we're kind of, we're looking at this, and you just, you know, and then like, okay, so what are you doing? And they're like, well, oh, you're from California. What in the world are you doing here? That's usually the obvious question. It's like, I mean, it's, you know, they think that like everybody looks like, acts like, and walks around like Baywatch, you know. And, you know, and so I'm kind of walking up, and they're like, oh, I mean, you know, and we're kind of giggling, and yeah, whatever, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm here to plant a church because I'm in love with Jesus. And it's like, and it's like everything changed, right? And they're like, ha, ha. I mean, it was amazing how all of a sudden, like, this smiley face turned into a potato in front of you. And I'm like, wow. Do I stop? Like, do I not tell them the next person that? Because I know that after 25 people this week, the next person's likely to give me the same response. 
no, I can't stop. Because to be honest, if I do, then what difference am I making? And to be honest, this should be the one place, this is one of the reasons why fellowship is such a key thing. It should be the one place we could actually say, isn't it great to actually be saved? And it's not like anyone should be like growling or gritting their teeth at you here for that. I mean, isn't it nice? Isn't it refreshing to have a place where everyone's like, yeah, this is awesome. Then maybe you live with your folks and that's okay, but for the most of the rest of the world, pretty much it's this is what you get. And Jesus says, and at least, well, it's recorded in at least seven places. Hey, if you really want to seek to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. It's amazing. People are like, I just need to find myself. I'm like, look at, I found myself, and that was the scariest thing I ever saw. So praise God that he was willing to, let, to slay that guy, and I'm more than happy to find the new me. So now, this is the problem. Hey, if if that person believes in Jesus, I mean, really, if, if, if they keep coming to that church or they keep hanging out with you, well, then they're going to stop sleeping with me and they're going to stop doing drugs. And, well, yeah, that's really horrible. Wow. Well, that's, and that would inspire me to stop. Beloved, it's 2018. It's time we make an impact. And sometimes that impact is going to be gentle, but a lot of times it's going to be kind of bullish. It's going to be those moments where everyone else is going to go, you know, the decorum in this room is for everybody to be miserable and somber and, and nasty and, and, and just, you know, I mean, and, and you know what will happen? It's like if they're going to try to find some subject matter where everyone's going to just be nasty. They're like, well, if one else fails, what about Trump? You know, they're going to bring something up that they're going to think that everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah. And you're like, you know what? I'm told to pray for every person in authority, and that includes Theresa May, and that includes Donald Trump. And it's like, that's what we should be doing, because somehow in all of it, the one person that is, there may be kings and there may be queens, but I know who the king of kings is. And I still know he's still running the universe, and I'm way good with that. So up steps now a guy named Cutie. Yeah, that's what his name means, Caiaphas. Caiaphas literally means cutie. There you go. What do we know about Caiaphas, according to verse 49? Well, according to verse 49, we read that he's the high priest that year. Well, as a matter of fact, he actually is the high priest longer than just about any other high priest within his, uh, within his century, to be honest. Now, follow me in this. Remember me saying that there are no kings after the restoration of Israel, and so now the kind of big guy in charge is the high priest. Well, Give you an idea, though they was the, remember he was sort of the religious leadership for Israel, there is still leadership among Rome. Now, the guy that's kind of been there the longest really throughout all of this was a guy named Vitellius. Vitellius, by the way, was the guy over Syria, and Syria is more than just Syria as we know it. It's kind of the whole northern region. Now, that particular guy, in essence, is kind of like the, he's kind of the grandpa of the area, if you will. Now, meanwhile, there's a revolving door of leaders uh, in the south. There was a, there's a guy named Valerius Gratis, by the way, and he kind of starts in bringing people in. And he brings in a guy, by the way, named Annas. Annas, by the way, we kind of know him because he's also mentioned as well. Annas, and it's important to note this, and so I'm kind of laying some groundwork here about this, but, but stay with me on it. Annas, by the way, he's a guy, and he gets too powerful. He basically starts, he becomes, he rules as high priest from 6 to 15 AD. So if you think about it, that's really nine years. Now, during that particular period of time, 
he becomes extremely powerful and he lets that power go to his head. And as he lets that power go to his head, the secular leadership says, we can't have a guy that's that influential in the religious world. Even though he's not fully, obviously he's not even for the living God, he's extremely wealthy, he's extremely powerful, and as a result of that, he gets fired. In other words, it's weird to think that Rome could fire. It's weird to think that a secular government could fire a person over a church. That's kind of the idea here. But that's what's happening. But he is not a dumb man. He has five sons. And each one of those five sons are going to rule as high priest in their own period of time. But not only does he have five sons, he has a son-in-law. He has a daughter. And as he has a daughter, sometimes that happens. They get married. And as they get married, that means you get a son-in-law. The son-in-law chooses to follow in the family instead of pulling things out. Traditionally in the Middle East, when a man marries, he pulls everyone into his side of the family and his stuff. Well, in this case, because dad is this really wealthy, still influential man, he chooses in essence to kind of come under dad's father-in-law's umbrella. Now, don't miss this. This Caiaphas guy is the son-in-law. And as he is the son-in-law, he marries into a family of five brothers. Consider now. Now, my first thought, of course, is, "Wow, that means that's got to be—he's got a lot to win." But if the man has money and Caiaphas does, well, then certainly, to be honest, they're easily bought because they've all been raised by a dad who knows how to play that game. So, Joseph ben Caiaphas. Caiaphas is actually the dad's name, but we call him Caiaphas, which in essence could make him Joe Jr. But anyway, he's um, the son-in-law. We read that in John 18:13. He's appointed by Valerius Gratus. And he's got the longest reign, by the way, for what it's worth, 18 to 36 A.D. Uh, he has, and again, not only does, and so he marries into a family with five brothers that now he has to call his own. And there's, a, there's also a, a grandson of Annas as well who will wind up being high priest. Now, for what it's worth, the archaeological aspect of it, there are two ossuaries that are found, one in the Valley of Elah, which is where David fought Goliath, and the one in a place called Talpiot, which is, in essence, the working man's district. Ossuaries are bone boxes. In other words, they're the tiny coffins that you throw everyone's bones in after a year because space is limited. Now, in that, the one that they found, by the way, in the Valley of Elah was the grandson of Caiaphas, or at least they, they assume so, and he, they find her that she's the son of a, uh, her dad's name, by the way, is Yehoshua, Jesus, strangely enough, uh, and which is still a very common name, by the way. It's one of the 11 most common names of the day. And, uh, and we read that she is from the priestly order of Mahatia. Well, it may mean nothing unless you're into First Chronicles 24, where David breaks up his priests into 24 groups. And each one of those gets to serve as priest. In other words, she's clearly a priest's family. So, David, back in First Chronicles 24, breaks his priests up into the family lines of 24 lines. What it's worth. The other one that they found, by the way, in Telpiot happens to be his. At least they believe it is. It's written on, it's, by the way, they're written on the outside of the bone boxes. Oh, for what it's worth. Now, here's the interesting aspect of it. Forgive me for that. It's just kind of fun for me is that there is this very wealthy man who marries into a wealthy family and then claims five guys as his brothers, who sits under a very wealthy father, Annas, who, by the way, will still operate kind of as high priest, and we'll see that, by the way, when Jesus is arrested. And when Jesus tells the story of Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, it's interesting in verse 28 
when the man, that is the wealthy man, is buried in hell, and he's crying out to Lazarus, he says he needs to raise from the, the dead, and he says this, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, he's asking Abraham, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now, I can't tell you Jesus is speaking of Caiaphas, but I find it very fascinating that he happens to have five brothers, for what it's worth. So Caiaphas, he knows how to play the game. He knows how to operate underneath Rome without being too much trouble. But it is interesting to note that he also, during his particular period of time, do you know who happens to be the Roman governor, procurator of Judea? Pontius Pilate. You've probably heard his name before. Who was also brought in, by the way, they're both, the guy up in the north, tell us, he actually sees both of them as a threat and he fires both of them. He actually fires Caiaphas in 36 AD, and he actually sends, and this is just part of the fun, he sends Pontius Pilate away to a horrible place called Gaul, where everybody speaks French. Uh, and then, by the way, somewhere in all that, and ultimately what happened is, is that there was this, this showdown because some Samaritans wanted to do their Passover on Mount Gerizim, and Pilate decided he'd just kill them all. And Vitellus is like, that's just a bad idea. So he sends them to Rome. And he gets deposed to Gaul, where everyone speaks French. And then from there, they move him. Some think they actually moved him to Switzerland, where some of the people speak French. And, um, and where a burger cost over 30 francs, and a bowl of cheese is even worse. Uh, or he actually winds up dying in, his, uh, in central uh, Italy, in uh, uh, Abruzzo, where, um, where they say he was born and raised. Well, anyways, for what it's worth. One thing's for sure. You can get souvenirs at all of those places. Uh, all of it said, this man stands up, this man now who's playing the game of political game, and he says, you know nothing at all. Now, I remind you, these people are panicking because Jesus is really going for it. You know nothing at all. By the way, when you started a discipleship with people, that was the first thing they had to say is, I know nothing at all. One thing we do know about Caiaphas, at least from historical accounts, is that he was a very much an elitist. He thought he was better than everyone else. Well, he was wealthier than most people, so it was fairly likely he genuinely believed that. Well, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for one man to die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now, don't miss what's happening here. Caiaphas, in essence, wants to offer Jesus as the sacrifice to the political temples in Rome. I mean, after all, he is a rebel, He's an insurrectionist. He's a troublemaker. So therefore, you get the idea, like, look at if we leave this guy alone, Rome will come and take away everything that we have that's important to us, which seems to be the way none of it seems to be about God. On the other side of that, we could actually paint him as the danger he is to us, to Rome. They could kill him and bada boom, bada bing, we all win. And he thinks he's being totally clever here, but what God tells us in verse 51 is, he didn't say this in his own authority. He was the high priest this year and he prophesied. Now, which is weird because this is the hardest-hearted man we could possibly find in this story. He seems to be the most openly rebellious to Jesus. He's completely dedicated to fighting Jesus' cause of saving humanity, by the way. And yet, this guy still prophesies? Don't miss that. And I get why then in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus will say, I believe it's in verse 22, you know, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many wonders in your name? And Jesus will still say, have we met? Because the issue is not what you've done. The issue is who you know. Well, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the whole nation. 
By the way, Isaiah had already prophesied that. This isn't new information. 700 years before, in Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each one turned to our own wicked way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Well, notice it says in verse 52, and now we're almost done. Not only for that nation only, that nation, that nation being the Jewish nation, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God. Now, don't miss this. What this tells us is that the children of God would be gathered beyond the nation of Israel. Because he says Jesus would die for the nation in verse 51, but beyond that nation there would be others brought in. You know who he's speaking about, right? He's talking about us. Unless you were born and raised in Israel and you're Israeli, and I look around and I cannot think probably, thinking probably not. So we gather together, one, the children of God, were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. This is the obvious en route. This is the destination on the sat-nav of a blocking heart. Ultimately, when you get to that place where somebody, they could pretend like they're open-minded, they could play the game like they're way into it, but in the end of it all, if they're really trying to block Jesus saving them, the only thing left to do ultimately is to eliminate. To eliminate the irritation, to eliminate the reminder, to eliminate anything that reminds them that somehow they had to make a choice against this Jesus. And if you are full on for Jesus, there are going to be people who are going to bail on you simply because you remind them that they said no to God and they're convinced and, and that they have no intention of changing that. And you walking in the room is going to bother them because you remind them as Lazarus, as a new creation, what Jesus can do, that they're refusing. So what do you do? Can you see again why fellowship is so important? Because when you get rejected by everybody else, there's got to be one place where they're like, oh, tell me about it. I feel you. I know what that's like. Isn't it great we have each other? Because otherwise you feel like there's nowhere to turn. At least as far as humans are concerned. So Jesus' response in our last verse. Therefore, since Jesus knew they were going to try to kill him and they were plotting to try to kill him, Jesus just went right in there and he, no, that's not actually what he did. He no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. Where is this city? To be honest, nobody really knows. And I think that's great. What's cool is, is it didn't seem like a lot of people knew back then either. In other words, Jesus pulls his disciples away for a huddle, for a time to spend with them before he's going to be executed. And I love the fact that Jesus knew there was a specific time for him to die, and that was Passover, when the Lamb of God is slaughtered and the firstborn dies to set God's people free. So he's going to wait. He's going to wait until this whole thing falls completely into place. And there he remained with his disciples. Now, I know there's a few verses left in the chapter, but I'll be honest with you. I remind you, when, the, when John was writing this, he didn't go, no, brand new idea, chapter 12. As a matter of fact, these last few verses really do play into the next chapter quite well. They're the setting. So here, let's take this, and we need to pray. But let me ask you, today, maybe you're not, maybe, and God forbid you're the last. God forbid that you pretend like you're open-minded when you're not. You pretend you're actually open to Jesus when you're not. God forbid. 
Because if that be the case, ultimately that is going to grow to the point where you're not going to want to have anything to do with this. And I would hate to see that for you. But, God forbid you be the second group either. God forbid that I be the second group either. Where it's not like we are completely blocking, we're just diverting. We're diverting any action or responsibility of choice and now just kind of making it all talk. Where we kind of know that at this point our butts get big and our minds get small and our mouths get flapping, but in the end of it all, there's no real walk. Our feet have no idea what faith is. Hey, if your entire experience with Jesus is in this room with our cute little, you know, pin-up balloons and gruffalos or whatever, I mean, if this is really all you have, well, no wonder why you have a, a, you're having a really rough go at life right now. Let's just be honest. How could you not? I mean, if this is really all the Jesus you get, when Jesus didn't die so you could go to church, but Jesus died so you could be with him. He didn't even die so you could go to heaven. He died so you could be with him. Heaven's the product of that. Church is the product of that. But man, if really the only experience you have is this, I understand why you're shriveling. It only makes sense to me. Because the world is going to be happiest if they're under the sway of the wicked one. And that's what First John 5 tells me. If the world is under the sway of the wicked one who doesn't want Jesus to save and doesn't want to see people pulled out of that pit where the gates of hell could not prevail, and we've been told and promised that, and, and well, then the best place we could be are kind of, in essence, spiritual raisins, you know, where we're just kind of shriveled and, and we think we're sweet, but in the end of it all, people like my daughter just, they hate them, you know. And, and you know, she looks and she sees an oatmeal raisin cookie and she thinks she's been betrayed because she thought it was chocolate chip. And, and the whole point of it is this, is that if really this is what you got, you're in trouble. Because this is about Jesus who calls people out of the tombs and calls you to follow him. But once you do, he calls you among others so we can follow together, so we can encourage each other. to go. Hey, you know what? You can still do this. Let's get back up. I'll help you up. Let's get going. Because we all need it. And there are going to be times where you're not going to want this, but all the more we need it. So let me ask you, as we go to prayer, have you said yes to Jesus? Have you chosen to believe? And again, that simply means I am choosing to trust Jesus. And in trusting him, I'm going to follow him. Not lead him, but follow him. Because today, no matter where you start, that's my prayer for every one of us. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful and powerful text. (laughs) Heavy, yeah. And there are people out there, and we could do the same. We would say, but if I let Jesus be the complete Lord of my life, I might lose my people. I might lose my position, my power. I might lose my place in life. I mean, I can't do the things that I'm doing right now if I'm going to make him my Lord, because I know he's not going to approve of those things. So I'm... So I'm just going to kind of pick and choose what parts I want. Oh, Lord, don't let that be us today. Don't let that be us. I mean, here we are kind of in a meat locker right now. It's cold, and we're, and, but it's keeping us from falling asleep. But, but Lord, it's cold, and we, just, we want your fire upon us, not just because we're cold. But that fire that burns away the wandering heart in us that wants to play both sides the heart that really, in essence, wants the approval of the world, but also wants the applause of you. 
that in essence wants to make the entire world think we're awesome, but yet wants you to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And what becomes more clear and evident by the day, if not the hour, is that this world is chasing after Satan with both hands out and with both feet in full pursuit. And we can't run with that and be full on for you. So forgive us, Lord, for those places where we've pretended to be open-minded, but really, if we're going to be honest, we are blocking you from that area of our life because somehow we just, if we're going to be honest, we just don't think you can give us better. But that is so stupid. That is so insane to think, Jesus, that you would go to the cross and come out alive and conquer all of that and not have anything better for us in any area of our life. In every area of our life. Forgive us, Lord. Let there be no more resistance. No resistance. Whatsoever. But to give you permission into all areas of our life. And may we not divert to talk where we just somehow bounce the idea of being full on for you with someone we know is going to try to talk us out of it. But Lord, rather, may we be fully convicted by your Holy Spirit and then in doing so, seek to to actually see them changed. If we share it all, Lord, may it be for the purpose of seeing them converted, not seeing us converted. So Lord, let this not be a temporary spark, but let this be a wildfire that burns for eternity with our passion for you. So in this room, as Jesus died for your sins and mine, was buried on the third day, rose again, and then was seen by a lot of people, as Scripture promised all of that. If you want to give your life to this Jesus, that's the choice today. Pray this prayer with me, and then we're going to have communion, and then we'll dismiss. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And I've played word games with you where I've entertained ideas but not really lived it. There are areas I've just flat out blocked you. But I do not want this to be about blabber or about blocking. I want this to be about belief and I want to believe in you. I want to trust you. So God, help me. Help me right now to say yes to you in all areas of my life. The way I see myself, my romance life, my values, what my dreams and hopes are, my priorities. Have all of it. Take all of it to the grave and resurrect something new, better, that's no longer covered in seeping sores, but alive. And give me a hunger to commit to fellowship in such a way that I could be busy helping unwrap other people's grave clothes, even as others will be busy unwrapping mine. That we could be all the more full on for you as we should be. And in this room to be encouraging each other to that very thing. So Lord, I commit this to you. And I say yes to you. And I say, have me, Jesus, be my Lord and my Savior. I give my life to you now in your name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.